and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Erica Keswin is a workplace strategist who has worked for the past 20 years with some of the most iconic brands in the world as a consultant, speaker, author, and professional dot connector. You're going to hear her reference some of the conversations she's had with some brands that you are definitely going to recognize. Her best-selling book, Bring Your Human to Work, 10 Surefire Ways to Design a Workplace That's Good for People, Great for Business, and Just Might Change the World was published in the fall of 2018, and we certainly bring that book into today's conversation. Her second book, Rituals Roadmap, The Human Way to Transform Everyday Routines into Workplace Magic, was published in January 2021, and that book is also referenced in today's conversation and Erica will make clear the distinction between routine and ritual which I think you're going to appreciate. She's also going to talk about 
some of the things that happened during the pandemic while she was getting ready to publish that book. That book made the Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly, and USA Today bestseller lists. Erica's work and insights can be seen in various media outlets, including the Harvard Business Review, New York Post, Forbes, Huffington Post, O Magazine, Entrepreneur, Business Insider, and many, many other outlets that you would recognize. She's a keynote speaker. She does webinars, workshops. She's worked with the American Red Cross. She's spoken at South by Southwest. She's worked with TIAA, IBM, New York Times. I could go on and on. She has quite an impressive resume. And in this conversation, she's going to get quite vulnerable and share some of her personal background and some of the things that she's seen and gone through as well. So here is Erica Keswin. Erica, thank you for coming on the podcast. I want to give a big shout out to Danielle Cantor uh, for connecting us. Danielle's rock star. She's been on the podcast, big fan of Danielle's. And when we connected, you actually invited me to your home. And I want to start here. I'm attending a conference. You were attending the conference that week. And you say, hey, Brian, why don't you just stop by my home and we'll connect and we'll chat. So me and my wife come over to your house, beautiful house, and we're sitting in the living room and you're preparing to host like a hundred people or, or some amount of people. And I was struck by your ability to stay present for me and my wife and your husband came down and to have this conversation while I knew you were about to host. And <laughs> that to me was a superpower that I think I got to witness in real time. So can you talk a little bit about hosting and how you're able to do that without maybe the stressors that come for most people that come with hosting um, and how you manage yourself, especially when you're gathering people and bringing people together? Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit crazy, but um, I would tie it and I'll, I'll jump into the hosting thing. But, you know, when I think about me and what's what's important in my life, it's it's building relationships. And so, you know, I love that you did a shout out to Danielle Cantor who introduced us. You know, when somebody that you know and respect introduces you to someone, um, I'd say 10 times out of 10, maybe nine times out of 10, I mean, I know that there'll be a great connection, which obviously there was, and here we are today recording this podcast, and I'm sure we'll do many things together over the years. And we didn't have a ton of, there weren't a lot of options, right? I was going out of town and and this was sort of it. And so was it ideal? You know, not necessarily, but because I, you know, I talk about, in, you know, I wrote this book, Bring Your Human to Work. I do try to bring my human and people will say to me, well, what does that mean? And to me, the, the short version of that is it's about honoring relationships. And so, you know, honoring relationships is about being present, you know, in that moment. The last thing I wanted to do was to have you come over and be running around. So that I, I just like I I'm intentional if I'm going to do it to really do it and and to be there or we probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now. On the hosting side, I do I I Jeff, my husband Jeff, who you met, we the two of us do love to host. Um, we do love bringing people together. I would say this 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 party that we were having and for listeners out there, I did invite Brian and his wife to come back for the party, but um, they had a lot of stuff going on with the conference and kids. Um, the, I'm, I'm a, I'm more the merrier kind of person. 
Um, the good news about this party is that it it's a ritual. And so I've done it many times. And with a ritual, you know, I try to have, um, you know, I had a caterer and I had the same caterer that I've used in the past. I, I you know, if it ain't broke, don't, you know, fix it kind of a thing. So I felt like, you know, it was a gorgeous sunny day. We've had had that same party when it's pouring rain. And then I might have been a little bit more stressed. But I don't know, like, I, I felt like I had my team of people. And at that point, I didn't need to micro manage um, that. And I in that moment, I had other priorities. And that was that was to have a real conversation with you. We're going to get to rituals, I'm sure. And we'll also get to your book, uh, Bring Your Human to Work, which was your first book. Uh, so we'll get to those. But I want to double click on relationships. While we were there, people started coming by before the party was starting. I think some of them might have had the wrong time, but I think others were just stopping by. And I got the sense pretty quickly that you were someone who cultivates relationships. What have you learned about building relationships today that maybe your kids don't know, or maybe you didn't know when you were their age? What's changed about how you think about relationships that you've learned over the years? I think that the the fundamentals of building relationships are constant and haven't really changed in terms of being present and investing time and making a time and a place for them. I think what has changed over the years um, is with the influx of of technology and our our um, you know and the distractions and and our focus being pulled in twenty seven different directions. I think it's harder to not only make the time, but also when you are in front of someone and, you know, I am not perfect at this. I mean, I, you know, the, 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 I'm sure my husband would say, well, wait a minute, you know, you're on the phone half the time, you know, maybe I need to be better with him. But, um, you know, the lat what, what tends to hurt relationships given all this technology is if, you know, if you and I are having a conversation and or we're in a meeting at work or we're having coffee and you say something and you really start giving of yourself in this conversation. And I say, you know, wait, what? And I was, you know, looking at my phone, you know, that begins to to degrade the the conversation. And I would say that that's I have a few relationships in my life where that's changed over the, the relationship has changed over time. And I feel like this one person in particular that I'm thinking of you know, and I have kids, I know you have kids. And there was always like, oh, I just need to, you know, check my phone for whatever. And there's always emergencies or, hey, I want to show you this picture, which I feel like sometimes was a ruse for like looking at her phone. And so you just have to make a decision that, um, you know, and I, I, I used to, I had a podcast called Left to Our Own Devices. Um, and I named it that because left to our own devices, right? Excuse the pun, we're not connecting. And so the devices make require us to be that much more intentional and it's really hard, but I think that it's worth it. I just saw something where the speaker was talking about deep relationships versus shallow relationships. Hmm. And the point that this person was making is that we often try to go toward people that are similar to us. They sound like us. They look like us. Maybe they share a religion or maybe they're from the same town or maybe they have the same energy, whatever you want to speak to. And his point was deep relationships 
require diversity. They require diversity of thought, diversity of experience. And we learn from a lot of people that go through life in a different way than we do. But that immediate connection, the way I felt with you, I felt very comfortable, connected. It was easy for us to connect in a pretty quick time frame. But he has me now thinking about, do I live in sort of a shallow space with people that are more like me? Um, And that doesn't mean I can't have a deep relationship with someone who's like me, but do I sometimes maybe um, not go after and seek people that are different than me um, who might offer something more long-term and deeper in the relationship? And so that just had me thinking and, and pondering and wondering in a different way about, you know, likability and like what makes someone likable and is likability the number one trait we should be looking for when we're starting a relationship or should we be seeking out something different? Um, so I'm wondering about relationships and, and how to make my relationships deeper or maybe stronger is a better word. Any thoughts on all all of that? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on, I mean, many things, life state, like what are you optimizing for? I mean, that makes it sound so, you know, that, that that probably doesn't sound great even using that word as it relates to the word relationship. But, you know, let's say, for example, that you're, you know, in a life stage and you're thinking about your your business and maybe expanding in a different area or having all different kinds of people on your podcast or whatever that whatever that is. In that moment, you might say, you know what, I when I look at my circle, I really do need to, you know, make it more diverse proactively. Um, But I also feel like there are times when you're in a life stage, you know, I I was listening to some of your old episodes of your podcast, and you're talking about, you know, travel sports and kids. And I know, you know, you're, we're, you're in the thick of it with your kids. And so sometimes I feel like less is more. Um, And I don't have, sometimes I feel like I don't have the, the emotional bandwidth um, to seek out new relationships, whereas I'm almost in the opposite to say, well, okay, at this point in my life, maybe I just want to have deeper relationships with fewer. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I tend to, I tend to vacillate. I, I also feel like you can meet a new person that you're very different from, but there's something that like due to that person, even like one little nugget and you decide to invest in that relationship. But again, it goes back to almost creating like a like a pie chart of your life and where your where your time is spent and and how much you want to dedicate to, you know, maybe 10% to to just finding new and different people to expand your horizons or are you like, you know what? I am tapped out and I'm really focused on my family and my kids right now because, you know, they're a year from you're a year from being an empty nester. So I don't know. Yeah, I think you have to Again, left to our own devices, it's not going to happen. So you gotta, you gotta be planful. Yeah, and you talk about devices. I was with a bunch of people yesterday, and it is interesting. There are people that are just going to be scrolling while you're with them and scrolling on social media and just, you know, finger tapping up and down, up and down. And what I've come to realize is curiosity is something that I really, really value in relationships. When I'm around other people that are curious, I was hiking with my mom recently and she said something to me. She's like, yeah, Brian, when you're in a conversation with someone and it's a one-way street, that's usually not a 
great conversation. I love conversations that are two-way streets. And, um, you know, there's a curiosity on on both parts. And yeah. to your point, the devices take us away from the curiosity of what we notice or what we see or what we observe right in front of us. And I think we all need to manage that. And it's hard to do. I want to go to uh, your book around rituals because um, I love reading the acknowledgments. And uh, in your acknowledgments, there was something that that spoke to a relationship that you have that that I wanted to get your thoughts on. So uh, in it, you mentioned your husband and how for your first book, he wrote in his signature, proud husband of Erica, author, bring your human to work, order now and make me look good. And when I read that, I was curious to get a sense of how you felt uh, when you first saw his email signature and that he was putting that in his professional email signature. How did that make you feel as his partner? Yeah, I mean, I would say felt great. I was I was I was proud of the book and and you know, excited that he was willing to put it out there and and you know, and grateful um at the same time, you know, writing a book and selling a book is not easy as you know. Um and yeah, I mean, and it's funny, he's still, it's still in there. And then when, and then he added Rituals Roadmap, the second book, and now my third book's coming out in the fall, The Retention Revolution. And so they're all there lined up. And then he'll forward me an email because some people will literally buy the book. And then he's like, you know, sold a book for you today. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a fun journey. It's, it, it takes a village. Um, and yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really cool because you're right. I mean, he's he has all kinds of people professionally emailing him. And I also think when you know you think about being human, you know, he's he's the you know head of a company and has all these people, you know, reaching out to him. And I think it also humanizes him, you know, as you know, as a husband and not just as a you know business person. You know, there's a whole life outside of what a potential client or customer is seeing in that other interaction with him. As you're talking and I'm thinking about what we've talked about thus far, I think about Adam Grant's work and I know he blurbed your book and his book, Give and Take. And I'm thinking about the power of giving um, and how being a giver uh, can be fulfilling. But I'm also thinking about just deep relationships and how often does a spouse or partner not celebrate their spouse or partner and not put themselves out there to let them know what they're doing or not show the appreciation or show the love or express it. And instead assume that, yeah, of course I'm celebrating you. Of course I'm cheering you on. And you know, this with writing books, I was blown away by people that I wasn't that close with that would send me a note and say, Hey, I just bought 25 copies for my team. Congrats. This is a huge um, accomplishment. You should be so proud. And then there are other people that are really close to you who you may not ever hear from. And there's almost an assumption that of course they're proud of you, but they don't ever say it. And so I'm, I want to go back to that moment. Why do you think sometimes the people that we're closest to don't highlight or put in bold or celebrate uh, outwardly and almost assume that of course they're proud of you? Yeah, I, I right. I think assume, right? What you know, what happens when we assume, right? You make an ass out of you and me. <laughs> you know, you you just you you just can't assume. And I think I have I have learned that um, over the years. I also think that 
I've been in situations and I'll share one of them with you where hindsight, I should have, you know, gone to them, I up some of my friends and said, this is important to me and I want you to show up. And the example is it's actually happened through Danielle Cantor. Um, we were both honored for this organization in DC called JWI. We were women to watch and, you know, and I was being honored and it was like, it was a big deal. And the email goes out for people to either buy an ad in the, in the book or, you know, I live in New York city, DC is a train ride away. You can literally go back and forth in one day. And sometimes it's like, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't want to ask people. And there was this balance of, I don't want to ask, but I think deep down, I just was like, I want, I want people just to know and to show up. And I was, I ended up being, I had a couple, you know, my couple of my closest friends were there. Um, and, you know, but, and, and some people didn't add to your point that I never thought would, but I had this group of friends that I was one, like they didn't do an ad and it was partly what they said in hindsight, I ended up addressing it with them because I was so devastated. One of our, one of the mutual friends ended up was, was, was very sick at the time. And she was always the one that was the coordinator. So that look, and they apologized, but, but that was sort of a piece of their kind of excuse for it. Um, the lesson, it was just such an important lesson to me to, 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 even though I would, we, these are such close friends and I know they would do anything for me. People also have other stuff going on in their lives. And so I'm, I'm going to think about that as it relates to this next book launch. Finally, I remember the day I, I it was, it took, it was so hard that I called one of my friends. I was crying. I was, I was so hurt. And I just said, I, I, I kept waiting for them to like do an ad or do something. And it just never happened. And um, they apologized and, and they felt terribly, but at the same time, they were like, I wish you had just said something. And so that was a really important learning. Sometimes it's it's not you, it's them, right? And people have so much else going on in the world. You don't know what's always going on behind the curtain. Um, and so even sharing that with you, it's it's a I think it's a good it's a good reminder for for me, even with my closest friends, to to tell people what you need. Yeah, I love the idea of radical candor, and I think it's Kim Scott's the author, and she talks about yeah. Um, you know, caring personally, but challenging directly. And I think for our best relationships, we have to care for them personally, but also challenge directly. And, you know, I, I saw this when I, my family was going through something difficult and I was hearing from all these different people, but some people that were closest to me, I wasn't hearing from. And, you know, after a few days, I, I sort of reached out to them and I said to them, I said, look, like, I know why you haven't reached out. It's because you're not sure what to say and you're not sure you know, you don't want to offend me. And what you should know is that by not reaching out, I'm wondering why the hell you haven't reached out. And um, that was a candid conversation that I had with that person. And since then, that person has changed how he approaches when someone's family member passes away or something bad is happening. And as I'm thinking about every, as I'm thinking about what you've talked about, it's a lot about showing up. Bring your human to work is, hey, show up authentically and genuinely. You know, your rituals, you have to show up for those rituals, uh, whether it's going to Starbucks or whether it's, um, you know, hosting every year uh, a party. 
if you don't show up, nothing can happen. And I haven't read your your latest book, but I would imagine retention, you, you have to show up um, if you want to have great retention, show up for your people and be there for them and, and stay connected to them. And I think so much of relationships, which we started talking about, is do you show up? And um, I think a lot of times people don't show up because they're not sure exactly how to do it. And so instead they just decide not to. And so that's something I'm thinking of. And then to just dovetail off that from the other side of it, from a self-promotion standpoint, sometimes we're afraid to ask for help. Sometimes we're afraid to say to our friends, Hey, it would mean a lot to me for you to sponsor this or for you uh, to buy a book or um, I need your help. I need your support. And sometimes we think or expect people to just do it without expressing what we actually want. And once again, the assumptions can, can hurt us on that side of the coin as well. I bring up that concept of being there for people when uh, someone passes away or going through hardship. You were open in, in your book talking about your mom passing away during the pandemic and not being able to say goodbye to her given the state of the universe. I haven't been through that. Um, but whenever I have someone on whose parent has passed, I am always curious to learn from them about what that experience has been like. And Charles Duhigg, who I know you know, um, said something to me once that was so beautiful. He said, my relationship with my dad has continued on even after he's passed. Um, so I know this can be a sensitive subject, um, but I'd love for you to talk about your mom and what was it like to not be able to say goodbye? And what was it like to have her on this earth for the years that you had her as well? Yeah, it's, it is complicated for sure. Um, yeah, she passed away April 14th of 2020. And for, I mean, we all remember that first month of the, the pandemic. I mean, those were the days of washing. We were scrubbing our groceries um, at that point. And so it was, it was surreal. Um, she went into the hospital with pneumonia and then I get a call about hospice. So we had, I was like, what are you talking about? The resident that called me that had such crappy bedside manner. I'm like, what, what do you mean? So it was very, um, it was a shock. Um, the relationship is also very complicated. That could be a whole separate podcast, but my mom adopted two kids when I was in college and it was almost like she had two families and two different relationships and they're much, they're 20 years younger. And so to lose a parent, you know, in your mid thirties versus your mid fifties. So there was that going on. Um, you know, we did the, the, the saying goodbye was, you know, she was being transported from the hospital. She, her biggest fear was to die in a hospital alone. And so after we knew she was going to die, but luckily didn't have COVID, we got her out and got her from the hospital to this nursing home where she, or this independent living where she had been living and transported her to this nurse, like the, the nursing home side of where she had been living the last five years, which she really loved. And so um, the four of us, my sister, and then my two adopted sisters, I remember this, we were in, I mean, this it, it's like a scene of a movie. We were like in full hazmat suits, even though we were outside. But again, this is like the beginning days of this pandemic. And she was being moved from the ambulance into the assisted living. And we were all standing there in a parking lot and kind of to say goodbye. And she looked up, she didn't really know what was going on, but she said, you know, my girls are all here, you know, all four of us. And so she went in and that was, 
that was it. Um, we couldn't obviously go in. And then the the people in the place would FaceTime us over the next couple of days before she passed away. So it was, yeah, in many ways, it was surreal. Um, I didn't know that, you know, it's interesting what Charles said, because uh, the relationship was a bit complicated. I will say that in certain ways, my relationship with her feels better, closer now with her not being alive, just because it was so complicated. Um, but I, in the Jewish religion, um, you know, there we have Shiva and, you know, a time where everybody comes together and gathers in a home. And I would have been hosting, you know, it's so funny coming full circle already to the first part of this podcast, you know, I would have been hosting Shiva and that to me, not being able to do Shiva, which is when everybody comes together and you're so upset and sad, but you're telling stories and you're, you know, I'm sure you, you've been to Shiva's, you know, and, and you are, it's keeping your mind off of it. And you're, you're with your people um, that you grew up with. That was the biggest loss for me. I didn't get that. And that really was taken away from all of us. And that was hard on, on the closure part, because I think it's such an important part of that process. And over time, there were so many people that died, obviously, during the pandemic from COVID and, and not. I have a lot of friends who lost their parents. And I would say a month later, people were having virtual shivas, but we were first. And um, it just was, it wasn't a thing. It felt like, are you really going to have a virtual shiva? But people did. And I think it's not as great as being in person. And but but I think it was helpful for the people that got to do it. It's hard to transition from all this personal stuff to some of your professional work, but we're going to attempt to do that because I think you're actually hitting on some points that you make professionally around psychological safety, around meetings, around gatherings, around coming together, around loneliness, which you've written a lot about. Maybe we start with like the 3P concept as just a way to frame things up for how you think about psychological safety and, and how important that is. And um, as we move away, maybe from Shiva and from death and from uh, some of the personal elements and maybe into the business context, talk a little bit about the 3Ps and, and why you think they are essential when we are having rituals, but also when we're bringing ourselves to work. And I'm sure yeah. it also bleeds into the work that you did around retention as well. Great. So interesting. And it, it, it's funny. It seems like, wow, can we really make this leap? But it's not that difficult because Shiva is a ritual. And my definition of a ritual, it has three component parts. You know, the first is a ritual is something to which we assign a certain amount of meaning and intention. And Shiva is a time, right? You get together after someone dies. There's a there's a cadence and it typically happens for a certain number of days, you know, after the, the person dies. Um, and a ritual is something that goes beyond its practical purpose. So there's no real, you know, you don't have to have Shiva. Um, you know, I often talk about, um, you know, a ritual. Let's say I, I'm in my home office right now and the lights go out and I light a candle because I can't see. Um, that's not a ritual, but if I light a candle every Friday at five o'clock to signify the end of the work week, you know, there's meaning and intention to me and I'm doing it at a regular cadence, but there's no practical purpose I can see. So those are the three pieces of, of what a ritual, my definition of a ritual. And when I was writing the ritual book, a lot of what I like to do is share the stories of rituals, but also the ROI, 
Like, why are we even talking about rituals in our personal lives and rituals in the workplace? And that's where I came up with this concept of the three Ps. Rituals give us, number one, a sense of psychological safety. Um, we all come together and they give us that sense of belonging. Again, you know, we're using this Shiva example, but it that gives you that sense of belonging. And a ritual is something that you really miss it when it's not there. And I, that was a miss, that was a real loss. You feel a loss. Um, the second P is rituals give you an opportunity to connect to purpose and to meaning. And when you add those two Ps together, you get increased performance. Um, and that, you know, on a personal level, when you have connection with other people, your there is a physiological change in your body. Your oxytocin goes up, that feel-good hormone, and your stress goes down. In the workplace concept, when you have these rituals, and I, I'll share some of them because they were so cool, um, that when you bring people together in the workplace, which in this hybrid world is that much more important, um, you know, productivity goes up, innovation goes up, engagement goes up, turnover goes down. So, you know, we have to figure out ways to, to curate connection and rituals are a tool that all of us can use and rituals don't have to cost anything. So when I started interviewing leaders in the, to write this book, I would explain everything I just said. This is the definition of a ritual and here's the ROI. And I'd say, so, okay, Brian, you know, in your company, you know, what are your rituals? Some people could answer it. Um, others weren't sure. So I came up with this question. I, I call it sort of the magic question that every time I asked it, the, the, the person would say, oh, I got it. This is our ritual. So the question is, um, you know, when do you feel most you know, fill in the blank, LinkedIn-ish, Chipotle-ish, Kindbar-ish, Allbirds-ish, all the different companies that I interviewed. And just to, to give your listeners sort of a, like, what, what, what do I mean? When I asked Daniel Lubetsky, who was the founder of Kindbar, that question, immediately he said, I know one of our rituals at Kind is during our onboarding, that every single quarter, um, all the new hires come together and Daniel would share. And even though he's not the CEO anymore, he still participates in this. He would share the history of the company. You know, why is it called kind? It was because his father was saved in the Holocaust by the kindness of a stranger and really gets around, you know, talks about the purpose of the company. And that's, again, you can link everybody that has worked at that company has experienced that ritual and again, it hits the three Ps. It gives them a sense of belonging. They all come together. It connects to the purpose of what kind stands for. And again, all especially Gen Z, it's going to make up 30% of the workforce these days. They want to feel connected to purpose at work. Um, and so you really hit the ground running. One other, you know, I mean, there's so many examples, but, um, you know, at Chipotle every day at 1015 before Chipotle opens, which who knew that Chipotle opened at 1030 in the morning that people ate burritos that early, but they do. They come together and they all grab a burrito or a bowl and they eat together before it opens. So I could talk about these rituals forever. But for, for people listening, when you think about your own rituals, again, it could be your own family rituals. One of mine was Taco Tuesday, or it could be in your organization. Ask yourself, when do you think people feel most you know, connected to your company. And that's a really powerful place to start in, in thinking about your company rituals. And when we think then about the state of our environments today, uh, work from home and people figuring out how to navigate this world, 
you mentioned even, you know, remote shivas. And while those maybe were effective in some way, uh, for those of us that have gone to shivas or gatherings post pandemic, uh, they're not the same. And there's nothing like connecting with people in person. And I am, look, we're recording this over over Zoom and and this is a great conversation, but the energy that I had in your living room is a different energy. And I think it's an and, not an or, but I am curious because you have written about loneliness and you are capturing it. And we are at sort of an intersection where, hey, where are we going with from a work standpoint? And people can say whatever they think we're doing, but I think no one really knows what the future is going to hold. We're going to see it's going to suss its way out. Um, but I'm thinking about that formula and I'm wondering about how are organizations thinking about psychological safety plus purpose and and in a remote setting? And how are, th- how are these companies that you spoke to adjusting or adapting uh, given the expectations of some workers and just the state of where we're at with where we work? Well, it certainly is the million dollar question. Um, what I would say say, you know, as this pendulum goes from, you know, who has the power, the bosses, the employees, um, are there safety issues about going into the workplace? You know, it's it's gone back and forth. My perspective on it is that we need to be even more intentional to, to curate those connections, whether it's one day a week in the office, whether it's quarterly offsites, whether it's one full week a year, you know, depending on your company and where people are geographically and your industry and the individual jobs, all of that will go into this formula of trying to figure out not there is no one best answer, but it's a starting point. But irrespective of how many days you pick, um, I do think there's a shift that leaders need to make, which is and I have this article, maybe we'll, we can put it in the show notes for people, but it was about, it was called On-Sites Are the New Off-Sites, How to Design a Day in the Office That's Worth the Commute. So what I don't like seeing is when people say, all right, you know, everybody picked two days and Erica ends up coming in Monday and Wednesday and Brian comes in Tuesday and Thursday. We're both commuting in, we're annoyed about commuting in, and then we don't see anybody and we're doing the exact same kind of work we could be doing from home. And that is going to cause frustration and even anger. And I think when somebody gets the opportunity to leave a company, I think they're going to leave. And so we need to design and we need to design for connection. And it could be a moment where everybody connects first thing in the morning. I'm not talking about doing this all day. Or it could be, you know what, we all come in on Wednesdays and re almost redefining what productivity looks like on Wednesdays. Because what the goal is, I'm making this up, you know, on Wednesday is we come and we bond and we connect and we have coffee chats and we meet people in different departments and we do our one-on-ones and we have happy hour at the end of the day. So it's, it's and, and what's cool is um, companies are actually either hiring people to be the curation, um, you know, be the curators or, you know, maybe for older people that are listening to this podcast, you know, I, I said it's like Julie McCoy from The Love Boat. Like it's actually either they're hiring people to do it or they're making it a formal part of people's jobs because they know, again, left to our own devices, we're not, it's not going to happen. So I think that is the shift that I'm seeing. I, I also, um, I'm working on this article. It, I just had this sort of epiphany the other day. 
I, I touched like four companies that were telling me that they are, they have people coming in a couple of days a week, but once a quarter or twice a year, they're doing these um, meetup weeks where people are all coming in for an entire week or four days or whatever it is for almost this intense collaboration. And then w- what I find is that you can actually live off that investment in time for a long time to come. Now, we didn't, you know, you didn't, we didn't get together for three days when, when you were in Colorado, but I do feel that I have a different kind of connection with you. And, you know, we've talked about kids and even before we started recording, we have a personal rapport because we had time in person. And so it's great that, you know, we can record remote and we're using this, this great technology, but it's designing for these moments that matter um, and then leveraging technology until we can meet again in person, if that makes sense. There's so much good in there. And I want to stay here for a little bit because to me, there's never been a better opportunity to connect with our people than in 2023. Like I Slack, social media, um, Zoom, we have all of these tools that we can use to connect with people that we didn't have before. And right. Sometimes a Slack message or sometimes a Zoom video call instead of a phone call is more powerful than it would have been in 2000. And so we have these tools that actually can keep us you know, better communicating and more connected and uh, from a surface standpoint. And, and those are necessary. And there's no excuse to not be connected to our people on what we're working on or using monday.com or whatever. There's all this technology Salesforce. Like we, we have this capacity to stay connected to each other and it's not the same as what we need for creativity and innovation and collaboration, which is the word you used, which on-site or off-site is just different. And I love the idea of a week. Uh, hey, let's use this week to collaborate and let's use this week intentionally. And I think the key in the podcast is called Intentional Performers because I think if people are intentional with how they're using Slack and they're intentional with how they're using an off-site, those can be massive wins for an organization. But I once heard this and it made a ton of sense to me. You can have the greatest gathering of people in the world and someone can still feel really lonely in that gathering if there is not psychological safety, if there's not mm-hmm. purpose beyond, behind it. And so whether it's using Slack or doing an offsite retreat, there needs to be such intention for how you're curating those experiences and why we're coming together and how our values are being brought into the environment. And so if people are intentional, they can really create amazing connections with people. The last thing I'll say is I I grew up, my family's from Washington, D.C., both my parents, my cousins, everybody was here when I was a kid. My two brothers up and left, one's in New York City, one's in New Jersey, and I'm bitter about that. I'd rather have them around and have Sunday night dinner and be with them at all times. But the truth is, like sometimes those Sunday night dinners are not intentional and we're just hanging out and we're not actually connecting with each other or someone's just scrolling on their phone. Right. But when we go away... And we're together and we're in these spaces and going through these experiences and we're sleeping over and we're like staying in a house together. We create memories and we create connections with each other that that go beyond. And there was someone that spoke at the Ideas Festival, which is really where we connected. And they said they talked about working out with your legs and the um, benefits 
to lifting your legs and exercising your legs. And they basically made the argument that your biggest muscles are in your legs. So if you exercise your legs with a run or a walk or doing lifting, that exercise will permeate for longer throughout the day and will give your brain benefits from just working out your legs. And I think of retreats in the same way. It's like if we create these intentional memories and moments and collaborations, that can help us beyond when we're now on Slack. And so we need to curate those experiences in an intentional way, which by the way, we always had to, we always had to, all of us were having bad meetings previously and, and having experiences where we were commuting an hour and miserable. And then we get to the office and we didn't need to be there. And then we're commuting another yeah. hour back and it creates a miserable work experience. So to me, it's, all I, about, I would say and it's, yeah. wor it's worse now though, because people got the taste of what like to not commute. So I feel like the stakes are higher and the expectations are, and maybe that will temper, you know, over time. But in this moment we are in right now, there is this feeling that if I am going to commute, you know, like make, make it, make it worth my time. And that that's not impossible, but it, again, it could be a moment in the morning, um, you know, or, or, getting together at lunch. It can be very small lifts um, to create that sense of, of psychological safety. I, I would add two things to what you said, and I agree with all of it. One is this idea of matching the message to the medium, which is we do have, we have Slack and we have Zoom and or Teams and we have picking up the good old fashioned phone and maybe doing a, a walking meeting with somebody in a different city and getting out in nature and so again, it's about intentional saying, all right, I have all these different mediums and ways to communicate what makes the most sense. You know, if you're going to, if you need to have a really difficult conversation, you know, maybe do that in person, <laughs> you know, and maybe we don't want to do that, you know, or send an email. That's one thing when I think about the technology. The other is in a lot of my work, I have a chapter in, in the first two books that's called find the sweet spot between tech and connect which I mean by let's leverage the heck out of all of our technology, which we're doing right now. But then we need to also put that technology in its place and connect on a deeper level. And that could be when you go into a meeting and you have protocols saying, you know what, for this meeting, everybody put their phones away to, make, to force ourselves to be, to be more present. So I'm a huge fan of the technology. But if you really going back to your very first question to me about deepening relationships, it will get in the way if you're not intentional about its use. And if I think about your work, the thread that also comes to mind is authenticity, whether it's an authentic company like Kind and saying, how are we formed and what do we stand for and what are our values? Uh, you talk about another company called Mogul, which talks about transparency and how we're going to use transparency in the meeting. And that's who we are. We're going to be authentic. And sometimes we're not going to like to hear it, but let's be transparent. But authenticity, I, I had to flag this because that word is is really an interesting word because I think sometimes leaders will say, well, I'm just being myself and they're being an asshole or a jerk. And they say, well, I'm just me. And, and to be honest, sometimes we excuse bad behavior from geniuses or real talents um, or people that are great individual contributors. And we say, well, they're just them. Let's let them do what they do, even if they're being a hindrance to the team. And one of the things I liked about uh, bring your human to work is like, Hey, 
let's celebrate authenticity rather than uniformity. Um, and when I started to hear that, I started to think to myself, all right, how do we bring authenticity while still making sure that people are part of something bigger than themselves and that they're still connected to something bigger because I think of the military or I think of sports teams or I think of schools and uniforms. Like there are some organizations that celebrate maybe the we over the, over the me in a way. Um, so can you talk about how do you bring both? How do you bring authenticity while still understanding that acting like an asshole is not authenticity. You're acting like an asshole. Um, how do we bring authenticity and bring this idea of a team and this idea of working together uh, in, in a collaborative way? You know, I think it goes back to the, the values, the company values or the team values that, that, you know, how do we, this is so cheesy, but how do we get the values off the walls and into the halls? Um, you know, we, how do we bring the values to life and the way to bring the values to life is to, make sure the values are clear, make sure that we live them, make sure that you fire the asshole. You know, that if this, because look, you have that best performer, um, but that person is killing the culture, whether that's on a sports team and being selfish or, you know, saying things in the workplace that he or she, um, you know, shouldn't say that person might be selling the most widgets, but over time it will erode the, the I believe the performance of the company. And then the, the people that work there are also like, wow, these, these values actually mean, don't mean anything. These are our values, but they only are on paper um, or in a little plaque on the wall and they mean nothing. And so to me, it goes back to let's define who we are and what we stand for and what is most important. And we you know, we hire and we measure people on those behaviors. And then, but, but we also have to sometimes make hard decisions um, around them, even if that person might be in the short term, you know, a, a quote unquote best athlete. Is there a company that comes to mind that you think does this really well? Cause you mentioned Chipotle earlier and I'm just thinking Chipotle is something everybody understands. Most of the people listening have gone into a Chipotle and eaten their food. You know what you're getting, right? The old McDonald's like, Hey, everything's going to taste the same. Everyone's going to look the same. Our restaurants are all going to, you're going to know when you're in a McDonald's Chipotle the same way, right? You know, when you're in a Chipotle and you know what it looks like, you know what it smells like, uh, you know what the counter is. I think they were like the first ones in fast casual where you could see the food being made. And um, that was a big part of it. So there's a uniformity that exists there that is actually psychologically safe to the consumer. Like I know what I'm getting there, um, but how do they also bring out the authenticity and, and add this sort of special sauce. I'll give an example. And then I'd love to hear from you. I went to a restaurant on, on Saturday night and it, it is a, it, like in Washington, DC, it was one of the first like nationally acclaimed restaurants. It's called Rose's Luxury. And uh, Rose's in, in our city, it's different than New York city. For a long time, we didn't have um, these nationally acclaimed restaurants, which we do now. And it's changed quite a bit. But one of the things that Rose's Luxury does is they give their waiters the autonomy and the freedom to add one thing to the meal experience 
that they think will make it a better experience. So they brought over this dish and they said, I know you didn't order this dish, but I think this dish will really complement everything else that you've ordered. And I just thought I'd surprise you and, and give that to you. So they do that every single time so that the consumer feels like they're having an authentic, human, genuine experience. And it leaves you feeling good about giving them your money. Um, is there a company that you see that does that really well, where they, they do have some uniformity and they do maybe wear the same thing, but they also give their people the autonomy to make decisions uh, in an authentic way to make uh, the company stronger or, or the ROI better, like you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I love that. I'm gonna to have to check out that restaurant. I love that example because, you know, the 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 waitstaff they're empowered, um, and you know, in some sense, if you go back there a bunch of times, I I feel like it's like a fun, almost like a ritual, right? For the for the consumer, you know, oh, I wonder what my what the surprise will be this time. Like, but again, that goes back to. Gonna, I am going to think of an example, but that goes back to the, the, the word of the day, right? And of your podcast, it's intentional. Like th that's not just going to happen. Like this, this restaurant is saying we intentionally want to balance, you know, that we're all going to, you know, we have high standards around the food and the experience, but we also, you know, want to make this a little bit different and a little fun. And again, it'd be interesting to see like on paper what their values are. And my guess is if we found them, um, you know, what the example you just gave is one of the ways that they bring them to life, um, you know, for the consumer. And it'd be interesting to also know, I bet there are things that they do internally, you know, with their employees also, because one of the things I've seen is that from a values perspective, some of the companies with the strongest values, there's not a difference between internal it's like this is who we are and we live them with each other but then we also live them with our clients and and with our customers um in the in the world of food what one example that comes to mind also is danny meyer you know with his book setting the table um that i feel like there's a lot of those those concepts um you know built into that and also trying to you know he went to no tipping and um, which was really empowering people to, you know, to build relationships, regardless of what level you sort of were in the organization. Um, I'm trying to think on the top of my head. I may have to circle back and give it to you from the, sh in the show notes nope. on what, on like, on something that, that comes to mind. Um, I don't know. Let's, I'm going to keep thinking. That's all good. The other thing that I think that does, everyone's focused on the consumer, but what it does for the employee, right? It, it it makes the employee feel empowered. It makes them give the gift of giving. And uh, I love self-determination theory, which suggests that when humans are competent, when they are autonomous, and when they have relatedness, so competence, they know how to do what they do. Uh, autonomy, they're empowered and have ownership over the situation. And relatedness, they're part of something bigger than themselves. When they have those three things, it's a cocktail that, causes people to be more determined, regardless of what generation they are or what industry they're in. You want people that are determined to do great work. And what that does for that waiter is it gives them a sense of competence. Hey, I know what's best for the consumer based on what I'm listening to. Um, I have the autonomy to go 
grab a dish and give it. Um, and then relatedness, like I'm proud to work at this restaurant where we care that much. And you could feel it in the restaurant. You could feel the sense of pride that they had. And by the way, they all worked together. So you had one person bring out the food. You had the other person fill in the water. You had, hey, you stop someone. They wouldn't say, oh, let me grab your waiter. They're like, yeah, I'll take care of that for you. Uh, so they're all working together in a collaborative manner. And there's a sense of pride that you could feel in the restaurant. So I love food and restaurants because you can see a lot of this stuff outwardly. And when you're experiencing as a consumer, it is right there for you. That's why I think it's yeah. a hard industry. There is no slack. There is no, um, I'll get back to you over email or, or let's look into that. It, it is immediate and you know when it's working and you know when it's not. Um, so I think restaurants are a really good place to observe this sort of stuff. I want to go yeah. to, I want to go to retention though, because that word I have heard a lot of over the last few years. And, you know, we're at this really weird place where there are jobs available, um, but people are are leaving and then people are worried about leaving because their salary is X or they we have inflation. I mean, it's just an interesting dynamic at play that people are trying to figure out, oh, there's not enough talent, but we might have to cut people. It, it's It's kind of a strange time as we record this podcast. Uh, why write a book around retention? What was the reasoning for you to write it? And then give us a preview into what we can expect when we read it. You showed me a preview of the book. Congrats. Um, but give us a, a, a synopsis or a preview of, of what is, is in the book. Yeah. So my, my motivation to write it, having studied the workplace for the last 25 years was that, you know, COVID accelerated many, many things in the workplace that were changing already. Um, you know, whether that was people having many, many jobs in their career instead of just being at, you know, way, way, way back in the day of being at IBM or General Motors and every year moving up a little bit in the ladder. I mean, those days were already over, but, you know, the new generation, Gen Z, they're going to have something like, you know, probably 20 different jobs, you know, and looking at, you know, fractional work and, and looking at, I mean, looking at bringing, you know, in maybe you won't have a full-time job at all and you'll just have, you know, the portfolio life. So everything has really been changing. And, uh, you know, I was an executive recruiter and back in the day, if I saw somebody that had moved that many times, that was the big old red flag. Oh my God, I can't interview that guy. Something must be wrong. And so, so many things were, were beginning to change that I wanted to, to look at this idea of, of retention and work. And another trend that we're seeing right now is that in some companies, there are five generations of people working under one roof, right? We're living longer, we're working longer. And um, so one of the things that I found that really motivated me, and that's it's one of the themes in the book, is that work is becoming much more of, of a virtuous cycle, or you can think about it more as like an ecosystem. So gone are the days of I come and I work in one company and I leave. And the premise of the retention revolution is that if you almost address this elephant in the room from day one, it's like, all right, Brian, I'm excited for you to come work in my company, but I know that you're not going to be there forever. And I may not want you to be there forever. And that, you know, it's like, we're dating, we're not getting married. And you know what? That's okay. Um, but while we are working together, I want to understand what motivates you. I want to help you grow and develop up, down, and sideways. I want to give you all kinds of opportunities. And you know what? When you come to me, unless you, 
you know, and this is this is hard, but I think it's what we need to strive to. And this is not if someone, you know, leaves in a bad, under bad circumstances or cheats or steals. But if you come and you say to me, you know what, I'm just ready for something different um, for me to not focus on, OK, Brian, I'm you know, you're dead to me. Let's not, I'm not you know, don't let the door hit you in the in the behind, but say, you know what? Um, we had this great time together and also be really intentional about offboarding and how and when you leave and thinking about how we can stay connected, what we're now seeing. And that's what the retention revolution is. We're seeing tons of boomerangs. You can leave and become a client or a customer. And that becomes this, this virtuous cycle of, of work. And so that's what the book is about. The first chapter is about onboarding and, um, you know, one of my, I like all, you know, all of my chapters are, are you know, I like, just like my children, I love them all, mostly equally, um, most of the days. But the first chapter in onboarding is called Start As You Mean To Go On, which I sort of love that phrase. You know, how do we start on your very first day or even before your first day? How do we help you understand as a new employee who we are, what our values are, what great looks like? And then when you leave, we talk about all these amazing ways that we can we can stay connected. And so that's that's what it's about. And um, and I'm really, really excited. All right. So I was nervous when I saw the title retention because I so agree with you on this. And I hear so many people say, even in the coaching world, it's like, well, if you hire me, you're gonna, you know, retain your your best employees. And I'm like, I think that's a bad strategy and a bad reason to use coaching. And actually when I get hired and the company's paying for it, I say to them, I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to focus on what's best for them. And if they want to leave, you don't want them to stay. Like they're not going to help your culture right. and become toxic and they're going right. to resent you and be bitter and be jaded. Those are not good qualities to have in, in your people. I had Patty McCord on the podcast and Patty, you're nodding your head. Yeah. She was in charge of human resources for Netflix. And she used to use this phrase, which really stuck with me, which is we want people to be proud to be from Netflix. And it's kind of like you go to a university and be proud that you went to university of Maryland, but you're not going to stay at university of Maryland, hopefully for eight years, like get the heck out, uh, maybe five, maybe stay for an extra one, but don't stay here for eight years. And then we want you to be proud to be an alum and be proud to be from right, here. Right. And I love what you're talking about because we need to rethink about the word loyalty and what if a leader was loyal to the person rather than the position? And so Erica comes to work for me. Hey, Erica, what are your dreams? Where do you want to go? Oh, I don't know. All right, well, let's work on it together. Let me help you figure out where your dreams are and figure out where you want to go. And let's just be transparent about it. So that by the way, when it's time for you to go, let's not leave a mess behind. Let's create a succession plan and make sure that you're also training or developing or educating the person that works alongside you so that we can fill in those gaps and those holes when you leave. And maybe that person will actually be better than you are at that position because it's time for right. you to go somewhere else. And so I love this concept because we need to rethink how we think about retention and rather than wear it as a badge of honor, it, it's, it's way more powerful. Like you said, to have alumni that are proud to have worked at your organization and can be a, a referral source and can speak highly about the organization. When you try to stifle people and create blind loyalty to the company um, and they just have to stay there because that's what is best for you. 
that is not going to help your organization thrive. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with a person that says, I want to stay here forever either. Like if that's their dream and they want to be here, make that dream a reality as long as they're producing and performing and, and adding value to the company. Like it can be both of these, but to ask the question, what are your dreams? What motivates you? Where do you want to go? And a lot of people don't know the answer to that. Stay with it. Keep helping them figure it out and don't just neglect it because one day they're going to wake up and realize that they don't want to be there anymore. And that is where the right. happens. Right. So a couple of things I'll add. I mean, that's why the book is called The Retention Revolution, right? And and I'll give this little, it's funny, I wasn't sure if I should keep this line in the book, but the, in the very beginning of the book, it says, um, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it's like, um, by the way, this really isn't, now it's not not a book about retention, but it is thinking about retention in a new way. And you're not doing these things in order. You're not you're you're not helping people grow and develop and having these conversations only because you want to retain them and basically have golden handcuffs and chain them to the desk. You're doing them because you know you're doing right by your people. They do right by your company while while they are there. And the byproduct is often that they do end up staying because they're happy. So it's really, you know, sort of rethinking pretty much everything that we knew about work. And what's cool is um, in the book, in every chapter, it begins with old, there's an old idea and then a new beginning um, for, for each one. And um so yeah, and then and then two other two other fun things that come to mind. One is there's a there's a company in the book called Jelly Vision. They're based in Chicago, and I interviewed them. Um, and they're in Bring Your Human to Work, and they have a a policy or a philosophy called the graceful leave policy. That on your first day, you know, when Brian is hired, um, I say to you as your manager, "All right, Brian, you know what." You know, it took us a long time to to find you and bring you on board. You have unique skills and, you know, you're a rock star or we would not have hired you, but you may not be here forever. And chances are you won't be here forever. So all we ask is that if you let us know that you're ready to move on, whether you're going to a competitor or you're going back to school or you're taking time off, we don't really care what it is, but if you work with us and let us know we will support you. We will open up our Rolodex. You want to meet someone at this company? We will help you. Um, because you were so hard to find, it's going to be hard to replace you. And so it's sort of addressing that big fat elephant in the room, you know, literally from, from day one and just putting it out there. The, the second example that I'll share, and it's related, but it's more recent, which is I interviewed this law firm and there was a study done by like an umbrella, probably by the American Bar Association that found that new law, like uh, associates coming into law firms, these top law firms around the country, only 30% of them even want to be a partner. They even like, that's not, so for 70%, that's not even their goal versus back in the day, you'd hire law, you'd hire associates. Well, of course they want to become partner or you hire a banker, of course they want to become an MD, you know, managing director. Now they don't necessarily want to do that. So we need to reframe all of the ways that we think about what's going to motivate them. And, and I'm working on this article with this I, the idea of, wow, this person doesn't want to be me. Huh. 
Like, how does that make me feel? Like, and a lot of the leaders take it personally. Oh my God, they don't want to be me. Well, that's okay. Let's help them grow and develop and become them. And I bet some of these people will end up staying in these firms. But again, you're doing it. You're focusing on these things for very different reasons. All right. There's three things that I want to <laughs> bring out. Number one, I'm not a woman, um, in case people didn't know. And my colleague, Grace, works at a big law firm. And part of their, her job is to try to help figure out how to, how to retain women in the law firm. And they need more female partners. And, um, and it's, as you're saying, as you're talking about, you know, what someone wants from a partner or managing director, women in our workforce, we still need to think way more intentionally about what success looks like for each of them. And there is a lot of diversity whenever I speak to women, as far as what success looks like for them in their work, in their work. Um, and I think for a long time, it was either you're all in or you're out. And I think yep. companies are having to reimagine what that looks like, not just for women, but for men as well. But especially for women at work, we need to be more thoughtful and intentional about how to bring the brilliance that women bring to our workplaces and understand that it might be complicated for, for a lot of women. And so I think of Grace and as you're talking about how those conversations are going around dreams, uh, specifically around women and, and what they uh, aspire to. And perhaps it's different than how some men think about it. And then the second piece, when you talked about, you know, what I want versus what you want, once again, if a man, <laughs> like what a man deems as successful may be different than what someone else deems as successful. And at the Aspen Ideas Festival, they talked about China. And one of the people on the panel had this brilliant statement. They said, you all are trying to predict what China is going to do. And you're doing that with American values. So you're predicting what China is going to do based on your American values. And the reality of China and communism is that the values are not the same. And so they're going to do things based on their values. And so rather than predicting it with your values, you have to get super, super curious and try to keep your own bias out of it to try to really understand what the heck they might do. And that's going to take a whole lot of work. But as you're predicting, you're assuming and you're assuming and being presumptuous based on your own values and you're putting it mm -hmm. on an entire country and that's not the way to go. Um, and so that was the second piece. And then the last piece, I had a woman on here. Um, she's actually an Aspen Ideas fellow. Uh, her name's Nicole. And Nicole said something to me about mentorship. And she said, the best mentors are the ones who show me what not to do rather than the ones that show me what to do. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking, that's what came to mind. How many people see their boss and say, I don't want my boss's job because they see what it entails. And that's okay. Um, and exactly. too often we just say, you should climb the corporate ladder because that's the next step. When someone might be really content with where they are and add a ton of value and be good and let's let them be good. Contentment and complacency are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, and someone can be really motivated and driven, but be content with where they are and not want some of the baggage that comes with management or leadership. And too often we just say, oh, you need to go and keep going up when that may not be best for them uh, and may not be best for the organization. So those were the themes that started to come. I can't wait to read the book because these 
are conversations that I'm having with clients all the time around what is best for their people and not assuming that what's best for their people is what they would want for themselves. And empathy is such a valuable tool because it takes us away from our own uh, objectives and really tries to get us to understand where they're coming from. If we can reduce our bias and our own value set, set and try to listen and probe and be curious and understand, then we can better serve. So I just gave you a bunch of information and, and sort of slung it back to you. Um, is there anything else that you want to share as as it relates to retention, as it relates to bringing your people to work, as it relates to rituals that we haven't covered today? I think you covered it all. I guess the I guess one thing I would say, if we were to in in my mind, if we were to boil all of this down to to one or two words, it is about curating connection, like hands down. If you want to, you know, make real connection, if you, if you want to retain people, again, it's in a, in a new way that we've spoken about it. And we're in a hybrid situation and just the way the world has changed, when we come together, we need to curate and really think about how we connect. And so to me, whether that's through rituals, whether that's through um, you know, having these, these opportunities to connect with your managers in different ways, with your mentors in different ways, whether that's having one week a year where you come together, you know, I don't care what you know, the vehicle is, um, we just need to put, you know, leaders that are going to really come out on, on top of this retention revolution is, um, is, is having, is really thinking strategically and intentionally about connection. The last, the second thing I'll say, and we didn't cover it today, but it is on my mind a lot is that being, and I'm sure you see this in your work as an, as a, as an executive coach, being a leader, being a manager today is really freaking hard. And it's harder. It's always been hard. But layering on all of the distractions around technology, layering on um, the new generations of people and what they bring to the workforce and managing people's mental health over the last couple. I mean, there's just so many things going on that... um, I think in this new world of work, a big focus needs to be upskilling our managers and making sure that we give them the, the, the skills to, to, to lead and be successful in this time. And I think it's there are just different skills than we needed 10, 10 years ago. Yeah, I think about managing, parenting, being an entrepreneur. <laughs> like These are things that people glamorize and say are great. And a lot of people would be better off not managing, not parenting and not being an entrepreneur. And there are so many ways to live a fulfilling and prosperous life. And yet we often say, oh, the entrepreneur, that's the person that everyone should be. No, like for some people go work for a company and and work a nine to five or whatever it might be, uh, depending on what they want. Parenting is the biggest one. It's like, we just assume everyone should parent when there's no way everyone should parent. It's the hardest job I've ever had. And uh, 
like we're doing the best we can. <laughs> it's really, really difficult. There's no class or, or, or degree in parenting that, that I got to be able to do it. Uh, and then managing is the other one where we often assume that high performers will make good managers. And we all know it's just not always the case. So I, I love yeah. the idea of intentional connection. That'll be the, the title of this podcast for, for you. Uh, it doesn't always come out at the end, like it just did, but you synthesize that really well. Erica, I know you're on social media, on Instagram, especially. Um, and I know you have a website, ericacaswin.com. If people want to find you, follow you, uh, buy your books, where, where else should we direct them? Yeah. So uh, there's links to all the books on the website. I do spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. And so I would say, follow me there. I'm, I'm, I do a lot of articles and for, you know, post a lot of articles, really reflecting on a lot of the content that that we talked about today. I, I would also say for listeners that I have a, um, a a short ebook that I'm happy to send any any of you know Brian's listeners that they want to reach out and say they heard this conversation here and they can just send an email to Eric at EricaKesman.com and I'm happy to send that. So you know any medium is fine with me. Just reach out. Would love to hear from people and and I do love to engage in those real conversations about these topics. So I will respond. Yeah. And I'll back this up. So Erica's also on Twitter. So she's on all the social media platforms. Um, but that idea of also being disconnected from social, I, my brief interaction with you in person was you were very present. You were not, you know, attached to your, you weren't connected to your mobile device when we were together. And then uh, my interactions with you on digital have also been great. And I think the challenge for many of us is how do we do both? Because we live in a digital world and it's important and it matters and I value it. Um, and I think we do need to respond to text or email or whatever it is if we want to maintain relationships. If you don't do those things, you're risking, uh, you know, if you don't communicate with people, it's going to be hard to maintain a relationship with them. Yeah. Um, but I also love at, over the last hour or so, I mean, we could we could probably do this all day. So I'm excited for the new book. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Erica, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, until next time, uh, hope you have a great rest of your summer. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. There's a company in the book called Jelly Vision. They're based in Chicago. And I interviewed them um, and they're in Bring Your Human to Work. And they have a, a policy or a philosophy called the graceful leave policy that on your first day, you know, when Brian is hired, um, I say to you as your manager, all right, Brian, you know what? It took us a long time to, to find you and bring you on board. You have unique skills and, you know, you're a rock star or we would not have hired you. You may not be here forever. And chances are you won't be here forever. So all we ask is that if you let us know that you're ready to move on, whether you're going to a competitor or you're going back to school or you're taking time off, we don't really care what it is. But if you work with us and let us know, we will support you. We will open up our Rolodex. You want to meet someone at this company? We will help you 